Well, when Hosea and his fiancée, Gomer, were dating, they had a heart-to-heart conversation. Hosea sort of opened it up. He said, honey, he said, I need to confess something to you. He said, there's something that you really need to know before we get married. I have an obsession with golf. As a matter of fact, whenever I drive past a golf course, I drop what I'm doing, I tee it up, I've been known to miss work, I've been known to miss family functions, just to play a round of golf. And I'm really worried that my compulsion just might cause some real problems in our marriage. Well, Gomer was so understanding. She told her, honey, Hosea, she said, sweetheart, that's fine, no problem at all. But you know, while we're making confessions, there really is something that you need to know about me. Hosea, I'm a hooker. Without batting an eye, Hosea turns to her and he says, is that all? No worries. Just bring your right hand over the top of the club just a little bit and it'll straighten that hook shot right out. Well, the real Hosea was not a golfer, but the real Gomer was a hooker. Gomer was a prostitute. She was a Hebrew harlot. And yet God called a prophet, a man named Hosea, a man of God, to marry Gomer and to start a family. Gomer had three children, two boys and a girl. Her first son, her firstborn, was named Jezreel. The secondborn, who was a daughter, was named Lo-Ruhama, and a thirdborn, another son, was named Lo-Ami, which, by the way, in its singular form means, not my child. The implication is that as the marriage wore on, Gomer's faithfulness to her husband became suspect. She began to revert back to her evil ways. It was obvious to Hosea that her third child had been conceived by one of her illegitimate lovers. And so he named him, not my child, Loami. Eventually, Gomer left the prophet Hosea to profit from her ancient trade. She chose a pimp over the prophet. She chose whoredom over a godly home. In chapter 2, verse 2, Hosea wrote Gomer a certificate of divorce. He sent her word that she was no longer his wife and that he was no longer her husband. He wanted to jar her, wake her up, grab her attention. The problem, though, is that she wasn't listening. Despite her betrayal and their divorce, Hosea never stopped loving Gomer. Even as she drifted further into her rebellious lifestyle, his heart longed for her return. We learn from chapter 3 that she became a slave She was bought by a brothel and worked for a pimp. Now, husbands, imagine this happening to you. What if your bride, the woman you love, left your happy home, your loving arms, for a dank, nasty hotel room and a succession of loveless lovers? It would break your heart. It crushed Hosea. Chapter 3 opens with the prophet wondering what to do. Should he wipe his hands of his wayward wife? Or should he pursue the woman that he genuinely loved? Verse 1 tells us, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods 
and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. God tells Hosea, go, retrieve Gomer. You know, the penalty for adultery in Israel under the law of Moses was death by stoning. Hosea was well within his rights to have her stoned, but God wanted to see her saved. God instructs Hosea not to give Gomer what she deserves, but to treat her with mercy, to love her, to forgive her, to restore her. For this was God's heart toward Israel. If you looked at this story from a human standpoint, you'd expect it to be found in the National Enquirer, in some seedy tabloid, not the Bible. But God thickens the plot of this on-again, off-again relationship between Hosea and Gomer by calling it a picture of his relationship with Israel. God had considered Israel his bride. He loved her, and yet she had forsaken Yahweh for other gods. Hosea mentions the raisin cakes. This was the finger food at pagan potlucks. It had idolatrous implications. It was the culinary means of paying homage to a false god. Israel had committed spiritual harlotry and broke God's heart. Hosea was not the only one being hurt. It seems that God also was going with a gomer. Now it's interesting, both God and Hosea were willing to divorce their adulterous wives. But though they let them go, they never gave up. Both husbands showed tremendous patience toward their cheating spouses. As a matter of fact, the book of Hosea stands as a monument to God's amazing forbearance and faithfulness. Israel, like Gomer, left loving arms for loveless lovers. She swapped a happy home with God for a dismal brothel called the world. And yet on the cross, God sent His only Son to fetch and forgive cheating hearts, just as Hosea had retrieved Gomer. And this book should spark hope in us. For who in this room hasn't flirted with sin and with the temptations of this world? Have you ever let the devil sort of brush up against you? Touch your thigh? Stroke your hair? We've entertained propositions For sin, we've sent out little innuendos to the world that if the right offer came along, perhaps we might be interested. Where's our loyalty to God? Do we take our vows to Christ seriously? The good news is, is that even if we haven't loved God to the degree that we should, He hasn't stopped loving us. The Holy Spirit searches us out to bring us home, and this is what Hosea did. He hears Gomer is being auctioned off at the slave market, used and abused. She's now being sold on the auction block. Hosea rushes in. He pays the price, and then he brings her home. He says, So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. Now the slave markets in the ancient world were awful. They were inhumane places. The slaves were stripped naked and put on display. Imagine standing there in a crowd of men, watching your naked wife examined like a head of cattle, having to outbid other buyers to take her home. You would be a mixture of embarrassed and angry. 
Hosea ended up purchasing Gomer for a homer, actually for 15 shekels and a homer of half and a half of barley. A homer was a measurement equal to 11 bushels. It's interesting, according to Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, the going rate for a slave was 30 shekels. That means Gomer was bought below market price. Sin had taken its toll on this old gal. In the eyes of man, she was worth half of a normal slave. What a scene this was to behold. Hosea, the highest bidder, he approaches the platform. He puts his arm around Gomer. He dries her tears. He removes her chains. He throws his robe over her shoulders, covering her nakedness. Hosea then slowly shelters her through the jeering, sneering crowd. He carries her out the, to, out the slave market all the way home. As we've already seen from chapter 1, the meaning of names plays a huge role in this book. The names of Gomer's three children all spoke of Israel's fate and status. But the Hebrew name Hosea also speaks volumes. Its literal meaning is salvation. It's a form of the Hebrew word Joshua, which is translated into English as Jesus. In this story, Hosea is a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus found us enslaved to sin, stripped of our dignity, used and abused, naked and ashamed. He found the people that no one else wanted. But rather than pay rock bottom price, he bought us with the most expensive price ever paid. His precious blood. Imagine yourself on the auction block. The horrible feeling of being treated as less than human. When suddenly, our Hosea, Jesus shouts from the crowd an exorbitant bid. You aren't even worth 15 shekels and a homer and a half. Yet he willingly gives his very life for you. What a scene. Jesus puts his arm over you clothes you in his righteousness, dries your tears, loosens your shackles, and then walks you through a hostile world, encouraging you and protecting you as you go. Jesus forgives our sin. He covers our shame. He ends our slavery. His interest in us gives us immediate value. He takes us off the streets and gives us a caring home where we can find warm intimate, loving fellowship with him. Well, verse 3 tells us, And I said to her, You shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so too I will be towards you. Now, it's interesting. Hosea takes back his wife. But notice he doesn't try to turn back the clock and ignore what she's done. Not immediately. Hosea takes her home, but not to bed. She comes under his protection and his provision, but they sleep in separate beds. Hosea takes her in. He provides her needs. And they may have been legally married, but he doesn't act like it immediately. Gomer was no longer a harlot, but Hosea wasn't quite a husband to her, not yet. Hosea said, nor shall you have a man. And anyone who's been the victim of infidelity understands this type of transition. 
Just because the adulterer comes home, marital trust isn't rebuilt overnight. Showing repentance and rebuilding trust take time. Hosea tells us it'll take many days, as he puts it, an an unspecific amount of time. It literally means as long as it takes. And it's interesting, this describes Israel's current status before God. For many days now, in fact, for the last 2,000 years, the Jews haven't played the harlot. They're no longer an idolatrous and unfaithful people, but neither is God their husband. See, their captivity in Babylon cured the Jews of false gods, but the Jews haven't been convinced of faith in God's Son. Today, God supports and protects Israel as a husband does his bride, but they sleep in separate beds. For many days now, Israel has lived in limbo. God's people are without God's Savior. It's interesting, one commentator, he writes of Hosea chapter 3. He says, in five verses, 144 English words, just 81 Hebrew words, God sums up the entire history of the nation Israel from Abraham all the way to Armageddon. Here is Israel's past, present, and future. She was married to God, then divorced from Him, but soon she'll be remarried. Well, verse 4 tells us, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Now, except for a brief period between the Testaments, for 2,500 years, Israel has had no king. Even today, the modern state of Israel is governed by a parliament and a prime minister, not a monarch. For the past 1,950 years, Israel has been without a sacred pillar or a temple. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. Israel has been without an ephod or a priesthood. Israel has been with no sacrifice. Genealogies that supported the priesthood were destroyed when the temple was burned in 70 AD. And at the same time, the animal sacrifices also ceased. Now to compensate, over the years, Talmudic or rabbinical Judaism has substituted the rabbi for the priest. And the synagogue for the temple. And penance or good works for the blood of the sacrifice. Which means that for the last two millenniums, the Jews have been shipwrecked and trying to stay afloat without the primary rudders of their religion. They have no temple, they have no priesthood, and they have no sacrifice. Of course, they are also without a teraphim. This was a household idol, or what we would maybe call a good luck charm. And the absence of the teraphim in Israel was a good thing. Israel's trials... And scatterings cured them of their idolatry, but it also shook their faith. They went from harlotry to just husbandless. And this is still the case with Israel today. There's God, they are God's people, but they and God sleep in separate beds. Verse 5 tells us, Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord in His goodness in the latter days. This long absence of spiritual anchors will one day cause the Jewish people to turn back to the Lord. This estranged couple will be remarried. 
And what a day that'll be when Jesus Christ woos the Jews back to himself. There is an ancient Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. It's known as the Targum of Jonathan. And in it, the author notes this passage from Isaiah. And he quotes it as a reference to the Messiah. In other words, in the last days, during the great tribulation, through the ministry of the two and then the 144,000 witnesses, Israel will come to Jesus and embrace Him as their king and as David's heirs. And once again, God and His people Israel will live in a wonderful relationship of husband and wife. You know, the story of Hosea can best be summed up by remembering a phrase. You've probably heard me say it before. Love always flows downward. And it does. A parent's love for his child is greater than that child's love for the parent. Hosea's love for Gomer was obviously greater than Gomer's love for Hosea. And likewise, God's love for us is always greater than our love for Him. God never gives up on His people. Trust in His faithfulness and you'll learn to love Him more. And then chapter 4 begins. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. Now beginning in chapter 4, we lay aside Hosea's marriage and we begin to listen to his message. See, his private misery prepared him for his public ministry. And from chapter 4 through the end of the book, God brings formal charges against his people Israel. Now naturally, a proud Jew would be offended by this comparison between himself and a prostitute. He or she wouldn't immediately accept this analogy. They would dismiss such a nasty notion. Perhaps that's your reaction tonight. Perhaps you're not sure that you should be labeled a harlot or that someone should say of you that you're guilty of unfaithfulness. Well, Hosea spends the rest of the book convincing the Jews and us that yes, we too are vulnerable. We too need to guard against becoming a gomer. The remainder of this book teaches us how to backslide proof our walk in our relationship with God. Now he continues, there is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. And this is the first step toward backsliding from God, neglecting his truth. You see, it starts when you begin to ignore the scriptures. When you start to peter out on prayer. When these things begin to happen, trouble follows. Faith comes by the word of God. Faithlessness rises from its absence. He says there's no knowledge of God in the land, and as a result, by swearing and lying, killing and stealing, and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Violent crime was rampant in Hosea's day, murders and burglaries and adultery, and as the prophet puts it, bloodshed upon bloodshed. And the reason, he tells us, they break all restraint. Notice the correlation. Where there is no knowledge of God in the land, people break all restraint. Hey, take God out of the equation, and there's no absolutes. There's no right or wrong. There's no transcendent values. 
As a matter of fact, some folks feel so emboldened to do as they please. School shootings and gang violence and sexual confusion and the exploiting of children all take place. Where there is no knowledge of God, brace yourself for anarchy. Yet why are we so blind to the correlation? We blame crime on poverty, on the lack of education, or not enough law enforcement, or the proliferation of handguns. In fact, look up crime in the United States on Wikipedia, and it even suggests that one of the reasons for crime in our country is an overexposure to lead. How about listing the obvious that over the last 50 years we have abandoned God's word and any basis for absolutes in our society? Institutionally, our nation has opted for relativism. In short, we have broken all restraints. And it's because of the violence, verse 3, therefore the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field. In the birds of the air, even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Apparently, a nation's sin and selfishness has an effect on the environment. Greedy agendas can wreck and ruin the natural environments for future generations. He says, now let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. Therefore, you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. Hosea is depicting a society that is in total disarray. People are arguing with the priests. Even the prophets are being led astray. Moms are turning against their children, and God is having to punish the mothers. I mean, it's just a society in chaos. And then he says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priests for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Hosea traces his society's moral breakdown back to the priests. They had abandoned God's truth. And again, this sounds eerily similar to our day. You see, the shift in our society from God and the, and the Scriptures didn't begin with the government nor with the media. It began in our seminaries. Conservative scholars yielded to liberal pressures and embraced godless philosophies that were popular in educational circles. The integrity of the Scripture was compromised for academic acceptance. And as a result, our mainline denominations today no longer believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. They no longer teach its truths. Even today, the blame still lies with the pastors. He says in verse 7, The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity. And it shall be like people like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. Israel pursued idols because no one had the courage to step forward and stop them. They lacked spiritual leadership. The priests were as corrupt as the people. It was like people, like priests. He says, for they eat, they shall eat, but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not increase. Because they have ceased obeying the Lord, 
Harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. The problem with Israel was wine and women. Harlotry, wine, and new wine. Wine and women. The priests were party boys. That was the problem. Of course, wine and women have been the downfall of many a man. Italian playboy and slalom skier Alberto Tomba. He dominated snow skiing in the 1980s and 1990s. Tomba once bragged, the last one to bed is the first one down the slope. But I got to ask, which slope? Tomba was referring to the ski slope. But don't be first down the moral and the spiritual slope. Slavery to sin. I prefer to have a heart that's truly free. Joy comes with an inner life that's not dominated by some uncontrollable compulsion like porn or alcohol or sex or drugs or fame. A heart that's free makes good decisions, not chooses that which reinforces the slavery that caused them. And then verse 12 says, My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. They offered sacrifices on the mountaintops. They had rejected the knowledge of God, and they had followed false gods and idols. You know, here it says they offered their sacrifices on the mountaintops. The ancients believed that the gods lived above us. And so the higher you were in elevation, the closer you were to the gods. And that's why they always made their sacrifices on the high places. And this is why the God of Israel outlawed worship on the high places. You could only make one sacrifice, or you could only make a sacrifice at one sanctioned altar, and that was the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. He goes on, he says, they also burn incense on the hills under oaks, poplars, terebinths, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters commit harlotry and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and other sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. Now, God has blamed the priests for the nation's casting off restraint, but now He blames the men of Israel. See, the man is the leader in the home and in the church. God places heavy responsibility on the man's shoulders. And here Hosea is blaming the men of Israel for leading their women into harlotry and immorality. Since the men valued eroticism over virtue, the women followed suit. It spoke poorly of both genders, the men and the women. These ritual harlots that Hosea mentions, these were the playboy bunnies of the ancient world. These priestesses promoted the idolizing and the worship of sex. Temple priestesses were actually prostitutes. They would go out from the temple and they would turn tricks to raise money for their pagan temples and for their religious cults. These cults were common in the ancient world, and they sort of lived out this free sex mentality. Here Hosea blames the men for running off with the temple harlots rather than romancing their own wives. 
This caused the wives to follow suit and go whoring themselves. I mean, this whole society was corrupt. Then he says in verse 15, Though you, Israel, play the harlot, let not Judah offend. Do not come up to Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, nor swear an oath, saying, As the Lord lives, for Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in open country. Now Israel worshipped two golden calves that King Jeroboam had erected in Bethel, in the south, and in Dan, up in the north. And it's true that eventually you become like the God you worship. It's true. If you worship the true God, you'll become like Him. If you worship a false God, you'll become like the God you worship. Thus, the northern kingdom of Israel became stubborn, really bullheaded. They hardened their heart against God. And Hosea warns the southern kingdom of Judah to stay away from Israel in the north. Gilgal and Beth-Avon, which appropriately means house of vanity, these were centers for idolatry in the northern kingdom, and Judah is warned to stay away. You know, it's one thing for you to spend time with your friends who happen to be unbelievers, especially if they're open to the message of Christ. You need to spend time with them. You need to hang out with them. Perhaps by doing so, you can be a witness to them and you can point them to Jesus. But it's quite another thing to hang out with someone who has hardened their heart and is hostile towards God. And that's why Hosea warns the Jews in the south not to hang out with those stubborn-hearted people in Israel. God understands the power to influence works both ways. We can be the influencer, or we can be the influenced. Verse 17, Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. Here's a bold pronouncement. Ephraim, this was the leading tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel, and thus it became the nickname for the entire northern kingdom. And yet God says, let him alone. God washed his hands of his rebel people. The word join in Hebrew is the same word to bind, as in being bound under a spell. Ephraim's Ephraim's attraction to idols was an addiction. It was an out-of-control lust. It was as if the nation had fallen under a supernatural spell. And God finally says, that's it. Enough is enough. And he washed his hands of the northern kingdom of Israel. He says, their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. The wind has wrapped her up in its wings And they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. The final verdict on Israel has been cast. What an ominous declaration it was. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Understand, God was not giving up on Israel. But he was giving Israel over to her sin. You know, if you keep painting your heart with varnish... If you keep putting coats of rebellion, the varnish of rebellion on your heart, eventually you will have applied one too many coats. In other words, if you keep saying no to God, you'll harden your heart. 
He'll end up turning you over to the natural consequences of the path you've chosen. He'll remove the protective hedge around your life and leave you to your own choices and devices. Well, chapter 5 begins, Hear this, O priests. Take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. Now God had blamed the priests, the men of Israel. Now He blames their princes, their kings and their royalty. He says, For yours is the judgment, because you have been a snare to Mizpah, and a net spread on Tabor. Mizpah was a major northern Israeli city, and Tabor was one of the mountains in the valley of Megiddo. He says, The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, though I rebuke them all. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you committed harlotry. Israel is defiled. They do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God. For the spirit of harlotry is in their midst. And they do not know the Lord. Notice again, there is a spirit of harlotry. Satan assigns demons to use various distractions to lure us from God. He says, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also stumbles with them. What is the source of their rebellion? What is the source of their stumble? As usual, it's pride. Pride is the root of all rebellion. It's the most common rock over which we trip. He says, with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. He has withdrawn Himself from them. In other words, Israel will come to God armed with sacrifices, ready to go through their so-called worship, but they'll find that God withdrew Himself from them. They have dealt treacherously with the Lord, for they have begotten pagan children. Now a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. The idea is that an enemy invasion is going to happen soon, before the new moon, within the month. These judgments are being cast very close to the eventual invasion that will take place when the Assyrians came and sacked Samaria. Well, verse 8. Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud at Beth-Avon. Look behind you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel I make known what is sure. It was the year 722 B.C. When the Assyrians laid siege to the city of Samaria and Israel toppled, her defeat was God's rebuke. And God here calls for the horn of coming judgment to be blown throughout the land in major cities throughout the northern kingdom of Israel. Blow the horn in Gibeah. Sound the trumpet in Ramah. He's telling them that judgment is coming. And then verse 10, the princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Remember, Hosea prophesied mostly to the northern kingdom of Israel, but Judah in the south was not an innocent sister. She too was guilty of rebellion. And like a dishonest neighbor who shifts the boundary post, you know, to sort of steal a few feet of your property, Judah had acted deceitfully. She had tried to alter God's boundary. Recently, I ran across the story of an old baseball coach named John Scalinas. He was speaking at a coach's clinic with a home plate hung around his neck. Can you imagine? 
He asked the coaches, how wide is home plate in Little League? Someone replied, 17 inches. He asked again, how wide was home plate in Babe Ruth's day? The answer, 17 inches. But Scalinas kept asking, how about in high school baseball? Oh, it's 17 inches. How about in college baseball? Oh, 17 inches. In professional baseball today, it's still 17 inches. That's when Scalinas asked, and what do they do if a major league pitcher can't throw the ball over home plate? Someone shouted, they send him to the minors. Scalinas said, you're right. When they don't, what they don't do is say, that's okay, Jimmy. We'll make the plate 18 inches or 19 or 24 inches. Home plate remains 17 inches. We expect Jimmy to change, not home plate. Coach Scalinas went on to explain this is the reason for today's decline in moral values. Rather than expect people to live up to healthy standards, we've widened home plate to accommodate irresponsibility and sin. And this is the mistake that's being made by today's church. We're changing the timeless principles taught in Scripture to accommodate the culture's wildness. Some evangelical churches today are embracing same-sex marriage. They're ordaining women. They're allowing for different ways to God other than Jesus. They're following the culture's inclusiveness, not the Bible's timelessness. They think that by widening home plate, they're going to be liked by the world. The church wants to be hip and cool. We don't realize that in the long run, we're hurting people and we're destroying the Christianity we say we profess. Don't widen home plate. Hosea continues in verse 11. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept. Ephraim or Israel relied on human wisdom. Rather than trust God, they listened to men. You know, for centuries when a Christian had a problem, what did they do? They turned to their Bible. They got on their knees and prayed and asked God for wisdom. Today we've created all kinds of shortcuts for ourselves. But understand, the answers haven't changed. It's God's truth that we need. He says, therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. Yet he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. The word Jerob means defender. Israel looked to the king of Assyria as her defender, but ended up becoming her destroyer. Rather than turn to God, the kings in Israel relied on human precept. and tried to forge an alliance with Assyria. It was poor judgment, and it led to their defeat. He says, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away and no one shall rescue. In these three verses, both the moth and the lion depict the judgment of God. I think that's interesting. The moth eats away from the inside out. You wake up one morning and there's holes in your clothes, and you don't know how it happened. I mean, you weren't aware that it was going on. 
There's a subtle yet steady inward erosion. This is one way that God brings judgment on a people. Whereas the lion attacks from the outside. He rips and he roars and he devours. And everyone shudders because of the obvious hand of God. Whether by lion or by moth, God judges sin. No one escapes either the direct attack or the subtle erosion. The only way to avoid God's judgment is by turning to Jesus Christ. And then verse 15 tells us, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. God will judge Israel and Judah and then return to his place until all Israel seeks him. Perhaps this is where God is today. He's in his place, still waiting for the Jews to seek his face. Chapter 6. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. This verse carries such a lovely thought, doesn't it? What a beautiful thought. God's rod of discipline is in one hand, but bandages of love are in the other hand. He humbles us, but he also heals us. The same hand that strikes us will bind us up. He's like a good father. He's not afraid to discipline us. But then once he's done, he's quick to heal us and love us and forgive us and restore us. And then he says, after two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. The word pursue It means to chase. It means to run after. Hey, if the lack of God's knowledge in the land is what is leading us to our downfall, then we need to pursue that knowledge with all costs. I hope this is what you're running after. I hope this is what you're pursuing. We need to be chasing after the knowledge of the Lord. He says, His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. In Israel, the former rains were in the springtime, and the latter rains were in the fall. God will be like the rain, and He'll pour from heaven blessings upon His people. Now let me reread to you the encouragement given to us here in verse 2. It's important. He says, after two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up. I'd like to bring to your attention several applications that arise from this verse. First is the idea that Israel is resurrected on the third day. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 4, Paul speaks of the physical resurrection of Jesus by saying, He was buried and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. But the question arises, Where does it say in the Scriptures, which was the Old Testament, that Messiah would rise from the dead on the third day? There are several possibilities, but one is right here, Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. Now at times in the Old Testament, the whole nation of Israel is seen as a type of her Messiah. You recall in Matthew chapter 2, an angel appears to Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, 
and tells him to flee to Egypt until Herod's threats on the young child's life are over. In writing about it, Matthew says that this is a fulfillment of Scripture. And he quotes Hosea 11 verse 1, which which spoke of the nation coming out of Egypt. Yet Matthew applies Hosea 11 to Joseph's family specifically. In other words, he takes a passage that in the Old Testament applied to the nation, and he says that it was prophetic of the coming personal Messiah. And this is what could be happening here. At times, Israel as a whole is used as a type of the Messiah. And thus, here he mentions uh, what's happening to the nation, but it's actually a prophetic picture of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, second application of this passage relates to the idea of the former and the latter rains. That God will come upon His people like rain. He'll pour out showers of blessings, we would say. We know the first great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The former rain occurred when? At the Feast of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was first poured out upon the church. But apparently there's a latter rain. There's another outpouring of the Spirit that's set for the last days that will come with the same power and intensity that shook the early church. I hope you and I are praying for some latter rain in our day. Then there is a third prophetic application of Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And this is proposed in a book entitled, Footsteps of the Messiah. It's by a Bible scholar named Arnold Fruchtenbaum. What a name. It proposes a theory that Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, actually constitutes a national call to repentance that will be issued by Jewish leaders to all the world's Jews at the close of the Great Tribulation. At the middle of Daniel's 70th week, the last seven years before Jesus' return, the Antichrist will strike at the Jews with a vengeance. As Jesus described in Matthew chapter 24, the Jews will flee to their wilderness hideout in Petra or in Basra, according to Isaiah 14 and 61. And it's in the wilderness of Basra at Petra that over a three-day period, the Jewish people will contemplate the claims of Jesus and then embrace Him as their Messiah. During the first two days, the Jews will be saved. And on the third day, Messiah will return and establish His kingdom. Thus, Hosea chapter 6, verse 2 will be fulfilled literally and exactly, according to his theory. And then a fourth and final application of Hosea 6, verse 2 relates to the ends of time. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 tells us that a day with the Lord is as what? As a thousand years. Thus, for the last 2,000 years, or two 1,000-year days, the Jewish people have been torn and stricken. God has chastised His people for the violation of their covenant and for their rejection of the Messiah. And yet Hosea tells us that after two days, God will revive. His mercies will return to Israel. And on the third day, God will raise up the nation Israel out of its ashes to a place of prominence and leadership in all the world. Now we know from Revelation 20 verse 6 that Christ is going to establish His kingdom on the earth for how long? For a thousand years. Jesus' throne will be the throne of David and His kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And so it's possible that the third day here of a thousand years 
or the third millennium A.D. will be the kingdom age promised by God in the Scriptures. If that's the case, you know what that means? That means Jesus is coming soon. Well, verse 4. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew, it goes away. In Israel, the dew evaporates no later than around 10 a.m. Such was the nation's short-lived devotion to God. It, was, it evaporated quickly. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are like light that goes forth. Each of the prophets laid his axe to the tree of Israel. They cut or they hewn. Soon God's going to shout timber and bring it all down. And then verse 6, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Understand, sacrifices are meaningful to God only when they're offered from a sincere heart. To secure God's forgiveness, it's always taken both the blood of the Lamb and the repentance of the person who's coming to God. And so that's why he says here that he desires more than than sacrifice. He wants us to show mercy. The knowledge of God is more important than the burnt offerings. And then verse 7, But like men, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. And notice the odd wording. Like men, they transgressed. It's as if treachery and the betrayal is what God has come to expect from men. Like men, they transgressed. In other words, rebellion has become indicative of the human race. And I guess that's true. Chapter 6 ends. Gilead is a city of evildoers and defiled with blood. As bands of robbers lie in wait for a man, so the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they commit lewdness. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the harlotry of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. Immediate judgment is coming upon Israel. But Judah's judgment will wait until the captives return, return from Babylon. This occurs much later, 535 B.C. God is going to give Judah six centuries and Jesus in order to repent. But finally, judgment will come upon Judah in 70 A.D. at the hands of the Romans. That dispersion has lasted even until this day. 